When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Orchestra Teacher Podcast. Welcome to the Orchestra Teacher Podcast. My name is Charles Laux. I'm your host. Today we are uh, we have a very special guest, uh, Mr. Scott Layard from uh, North Carolina. Um, Scott and I have known each other for for quite a while and uh, have done some collaborative work, and I've always just been really impressed and. Uh, amazed and um, inspired by everything that he does. So welcome, Scott, to the Orchard Teacher Podcast. Hi, it's great to be here today, and uh, I appreciate you asking me to, to sit down with you for a while. It's going to be a great episode. Um, Scott has so much to share and so many fantastic ideas and does all this great work uh, at his school, and he'll tell you a little bit about his school and, and, and uh, that situation, how special it is. And then um, all the guests conducting and clinics. And uh, like I said, over the years, I've, I've learned so much from him and it's just been great to be uh, his friend and, and colleague. And um, so we'll go ahead. Uh, Scott, will you just tell us a little bit about, you know, your background and your current teaching situation and just give us a kind of an overview of, of you and what you do. Sure. Um, well, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, not far from Pittsburgh in the little college town of Indiana, Pennsylvania. And I uh, wanted to start the violin when I was six years old, when my first grade teacher told us that she had played the violin and uh, went home, tried to convince my parents to let me play the violin. And the answer was no. And uh, my dad was a school superintendent. And um, uh, later that week or the next week, we were having dinner at my principal's house because they were colleagues and friends. And I found an old fiddle in my principal's basement. And came tearing up the stairs and I was not to be stopped at that moment. I pestered my dad so much that he and my mom bought a little quarter size violin and off I went. I was really fortunate to grow up in a college town. So um, my first teacher was a graduate school, a graduate student at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And actually for your listeners out there that are fans of Chloe Trevor, my first teacher was Chloe's mom, Heidi. And uh, Heidi's mom and dad lived down the hill from my parents, and she was finishing graduate school at the time. And so, so my first four or five years of violin were with uh, Heidi, who ended, uh, who sadly passed away uh, a little over a year ago, and uh, but was in the Dallas Symphony for many, many years. So after Heidi left, after her grad school, um, continued with basically what I would call modified Suzuki lessons through high school with my teacher was Gloria Johnson, who was a well-known private instructor in Indiana. And then I continued with Delight Malitsky, who was the violin professor at IUP through my undergraduate and master's degree in violin performance. So my undergrad was music ed and my uh, master's was in performance. Um, 
uh, I, I actually, when I went to college, I, I wanted to, you know, be a songwriter. I wanted, I always say I wanted to be Billy Joel, you know, like lots of us. And, uh, and my parents who were both educators really convinced me to get an education degree. And, and at the time I never dreamed that I would use it, but I had a professor in college named John Keene, Dr. John Keene, who saw me rehearsing with a saxophone quartet of all things. I was playing bass, electric bass with a saxophone quartet. And he pulled me aside after the rehearsal and he asked me what my plans were. This was my sophomore year of college. And, and I said, I really didn't know. He said, Hey Scott, you're a teacher. He said, get in my office tomorrow morning at eight o'clock and I've got a path for you. And uh, I don't know what it was about that day or that time, but I, I believed him. And I showed up in his office at eight o'clock the next morning and he just set me on a course of um, uh, caring about pedagogy, caring about kids, caring about technique. And, um, and, and the idea that, that music education could be a career that I could have uh, impact. And I, I think a lot about the word impact in my daily life. And, and um, I thought about it a lot then. And um, so anyway, uh, student profession, that's for sure. Yeah, and and I know we'll probably spend a little time talking about the the strange days that we live in. But but if ever there was a time that impact be, becomes apparent to us as teachers, I think it's now. Right. You know? So, so uh, we'll I, I'm sure talk about that a little bit more. But but I just cared about it. I, I wanted to have a, a a career in music where um, you know 30 years later, where I am now, that I could look back and go, wow, I I made a difference. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I set off on that course back in the eighties. So, uh, anyway, to make a, a long story short, uh, a student taught with, uh, Walter Strayton in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and had an amazing experience there with more guys that really, you know, guided me and, and, um, affirmed this opportunity that I would have to, to have, a, an impactful career. Um, my first job was in um, Palmyra, Pennsylvania, where I started really, really built their string program up for about six years in the, in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, I moved to Eleanor Roosevelt High School in Greenbelt, Maryland, where I uh, taught in, in this large urban high school setting for uh, the decade of the 90s, basically, and had a, a high-powered orchestra program there. And the and Eleanor Roosevelt was a science and technology magnet school. Okay. So the principal of Eleanor Roosevelt uh, was hired to become the uh, then director, now chancellor of the School of Science and Math in Durham. Yeah. And he came down and checked out that program. And very shortly after he started in Durham, he called me up and said, "Hey, Scott, I, I need you down here. There's some things that I think you can bring to this school." And uh, my kids were little at the time, and we were ready for a change. Mm-hmm. And so um, in 2001, my wife and I, and at that time, two sons, moved down to Durham to uh, what, it's a, what was a very small orchestra program and just a, an opportunity to, to impact the culture of a school uh, in the context of the science and math and technology-centered um, approach. So we've been here at the North Carolina School of Science and Math since 01. And um, it, I love telling people about the school because people sometimes can't even almost imagine the, right, the right. school. You so here's told me about it. I was I was kind of like, what? This is that's amazing. Yeah. And and I'd never heard of it. You know, you know, I, I really thought I was 
going to spend my career in public K-12 oriented high school settings. That's where, where I thought I was going to be. But um, this opportunity was so cool. So, so the, the North Carolina School of Science and Math was founded um, in 1978 by Governor Hunt of North Carolina. I might be off by one year. It was the late 70s. First graduating class was 1982. Mm-hmm. The way that the school works is students from all over the state have the opportunity to apply to come to our school as 10th graders. Uh, they apply in 10th grade from home. The application is based on a number of criteria, but, but the heaviest weighted are SAT scores, grades, and the rigor of the program that they've taken up to that point. Okay. And, and if they uh, are selected, they receive a full tuition, full room and board, 100% scholarship to come and live at our school for their junior and senior year. Every congressional district in the state gets a quota of students. So it truly is a cross section of the state from rural kids to city kids and everything in between. Um, And uh, it's diverse in every way. And it's truly a a community of scholars. Everyone's basically there as a science and math quote major. I mean, we don't call it that, but, but, but uh, yeah. Yeah. And the arts are a pure elective at our school. So when you take orchestra or music history or band or chorus, unlike most traditional high schools where you're giving up an academic class to take that class uh, at our school, it's on top of a full academic load. So there's a nuance to that that keeps some of those kids that are um, uh, looking uh, uh, to become doctors or researchers or really want the the full enchilada of what our school offers academically, it keeps them in orchestra. So um, uh, so anyway, I uh, I came in 01 to our school and and was um, to be to be honest, I was charged with uh, creating an arts culture that was different than what was there when I arrived. Yeah, and um, have spent the last twenty years endeavoring to. Do- to do that. So, uh, I love it. It's a great, it's a great spot. We're part of the university of North Carolina. We're one of the 17 constituent institutions and we were, we were the last one of the 17 to come on board. I I can't remember the exact year, but I think it was, I, I I will say it was around 08 or 07, something like that, uh, that we became a constituent institution. Again, I might be off on that year a little bit. Amazing. Amazing. So, um, you know, over the years, I've heard you're, you, you've done a lot of work with pedagogy. You've done a lot of work with like electronic instruments and improvisation. Um, and uh, what's fascinated me most recently has been uh, your lectures that are just upon musicianship and creativity and just getting to the root of what music really should be about. Um, and can you just tell us a little bit about your approach and, and some of the some of the things that you've been working on with your own students and uh, you know, when you're doing all States and uh, you know, regional groups that you conduct, tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. So, uh, you know, I think, I think our overarching philosophy of teaching and music evolves over time. And mine certainly has. Uh, Uh, um, I know that I can go back in my history and um, find the seeds that were planted, um, mm-hmm. e- either by me or by others, 
that have become these larger philosophical ideas that I have today as a veteran string educator and, and a music educator. So, so I'll start with the now and then I'll sort of move back in my history. So I, I would say that my, uh, my kind of large philosophies that I'm dealing with on a daily basis right now are, uh, there's, there's two of them. Um, one of them would be the concept of teaching functional musicianship at all times. And when I say functional musicianship, what I'm really saying is that I believe <clears throat> that everything we do, everything we play has to be seen through the glasses of not only uh, the notes on the page, the right notes, the right rhythms, but also through the glasses of harmony, through the glasses of ensemble, through the glasses of um, a functionality that goes beyond I'm playing my part correctly. Right. And, that, and it's, 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 yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really deep when you start going and, and um, so uh, let me go back into my history and I don't want to forget my other one. I'm going to, I'm going to write down um, cause I want to give you the two. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the other big idea and then we'll go back and I'll sort of show you where I, where I got to the, the, the other one is a concept of um, fluency as a model for musical learning. And so any of the folks that are listening to this that are steeped in Suzuki are going to go, well, of course, he was a Suzuki guy. But I'd like to, I'd like to say a couple of words about fluency in music learning. And, and, then, um, and so I'll do that secondarily. Let's go back to the functional uh, musician's side. So I, I told you a little bit about my history. And growing up in the 70s, um, I was like probably many people out there, I was the guy who played the violin. Uh, I was in this amazing violin studio with other kids who were really good. And, and, um, and, and, and we were all, you know, getting great instruction and doing well. And so I was always sort of at the top of my um, class in school because I started so early. I was the kid who played violin. And, um, uh, but my, my, my sort of my musical sensibilities as a kid were to be drawn to non-classical music. I, I, the first record album I ever bought was Boston's first album, Foreigner's first album. And somewhere around 1977, my older sister had a boyfriend who introduced me to Sticks, right. And, and these are the, these are the musicians that shaped my musical sensibilities. Sure. Um, and of course, when I was introduced to Kansas with that violin, that also uh, shaped my musical sensibilities. So, so I grew up listening to that kind of music. Let's call it arena rock music. But I'm in Allstate, you have to have a Kansas song in there and a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's so funny because cause I, I love that stuff and I grew up on it. And I, I was the kid, like a lot of kids my age, I, I read the lyrics on the album cover back when we had album covers and I loved the album art and I, and I had a little stereo in my bedroom and literally I would just immerse myself in the, in the concepts and the, um, I loved the, um, the, the uh, concept albums and, uh, you know, I remember when I got 
Queen's News of the World record and that robot was on the front of it. It was a big double fold-out album. And it just, like, I was so inspired. It just, my imagination just popped. You in. Yeah. yeah. So, so, and, but through that, so I, I learned to play the electric bass also. Mm-hmm. And I learned how to play um, uh, what I would call functional piano <laughs> from a, I took uh, my junior year of high school. I took uh, music theory lessons from, a guy in my hometown who was doing a composition degree and he taught me how to uh, play uh, primary chords, one, four, one, five, one around the circle of fifths. And it was functional. Right. And all of a sudden I started figuring out, Hey, I could write music. This is how I got to the songwriting thing. So I would write songs as a 16, 17 year old guy. And I would be able to express my thoughts, my ideas through song. And, and I've always said that I think my motivator in music was probably more social than musical through actually through my entire life. You know, you know, I loved going to a, a, a district orchestra and regional orchestra and meeting new people and sitting down beside somebody and figuring out who they were. And I've oftentimes said, I, I, I still remember vividly going to those events and sitting down beside my stand partner and I would know within five minutes if they wanted to make music together all weekend or if they wanted to compete all weekend. <laughs> and I was good to go. You know, I do it either way. I, you want to compete? Fine. I'll, I'll go. And, uh, but, but if you want to make music together, it's going to be more fun. Let's do that. You yeah. know? And, um, and, um, social aspect, yeah, go ahead. The social aspect of music is just so important. I mean, that's why like after conference, you know, just, you get yeah. about the people, you know, and you can talk about different ideas and I mean, there's so much. Yeah. And, and yeah. So that's, that's that for us. Right. And, um, and I think as a conductor, when I became a teacher and then, and then um, started developing my conducting skills more, it's just an extension of that. Right. When, when you walk into a, a guest conducting opportunity or a, a new opportunity or a, or a conference, mm-hmm. you're walking into a room full of people that, that, that you don't know yet, but who, who I, I I want to connect with them and I want to connect with them through music. And, and when hearts are open to go, Hey, I've got something to share. I'm going to share it freely with you. And, and, um, and I'm pretty sure you've got something to share with me and I'm going to accept it with an open heart. Um, That to me is at its core. That's, that's teaching at its very, very best. But this functional idea goes so far beyond it because, you know, I, I played in, I played in rock bands through high school and through college. I, I played bass in my university jazz ensemble and um, I started songwriting. I've played in all kinds of different um, uh, musical settings. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I found that, you know, the orchestra can oftentimes inform what I do in a non-traditional musical setting. And all that I've learned in the non-traditional musical setting about listening and reacting and communicating and interacting absolutely informs the way I want orchestral players to play. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like the, the functional musicianship aspect of this is if you take everything you know about good classical orchestral technique and instruction, mm-hmm. and then you superimpose I superimpose what I've learned in the in the garage band or 
church praise band setting or whatever setting you want to call, talk about. And I can superimpose those ideas into the orchestral setting and vice versa. That's functional musicianship at its highest quality in, in my view. I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge classic rock fan. I love the Beatles. I love, you know, and uh, so much you can hear so much in, in a lot of popular music, um, at least the popular music that I listen to um, some of the things that, they've gotten from Mozart, Beethoven, you know, the great, great composers, whatnot. And then, you know, vice versa, you try to, to bring life to, yeah. to other music, you know? So I'll give you a little example, just in case that's a, a little bit ambiguous, but uh, my, um, my students know my catchphrases and my ideas. So we, we performed uh, Beethoven symphony um, in our winter term. And um, one of the things about Beethoven that, I love and I love playing is uh, in the in the inner harmonies of the string section, the second violins and the violas. There's frequently those sixteenth note uh, uh, scrubby passages. Digga 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 digga. And um, it, yeah, everybody. And um, and um, I I call those the engine. And um, to me they're the driving force in that repertoire that is that it's the engine that drives everything else and so my students when they when they um get to those passages i want them to like sit a little taller and, and be a little bit more assertive they become what i call the teacher at that moment because that engine is really driving everything else that's happening in the ensemble um and, and then I'll draw the comparison between the engine and let's say the rhythm guitar in a, in a rock setting, right? Uh, or, or who knows what might have it. Maybe the bass has that role. But, but if you start listening for certain things in the ensemble, I also use the, the, um, the metaphor of teacher and student a lot, uh, which I incidentally uh, stole from my friend Jung Ho Pak. Uh, when we work together at Interlock and, and, but he would do this a lot. And, and, and I do it a lot now where we're, we're in an ensemble setting. We just sort of stop and go, okay, who's, who's got the driving um, line? Who are we listening to as the teacher at any given time? And what I love about it is it takes a lot of the uh, sort of conductor centric notion of orchestral playing and it just sort of throws it away. The conductor has a role, but the conductor is not always the teacher. Right. There, there can be a sonic teacher somewhere else in the ensemble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it empowers because then if the violas are the teacher, the viola section plays <laughs> in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. And um, absolutely. yeah. So, so um, these are just a couple. I mean, I could, I could talk about functionality of musicianship um, all day long, but I, um, the term, I, I realize the term sounds a little, uh, I don't know, pedestrian, but functional musicianship to me is the core of great music making. Yeah. And, um, and so, so that's one of the ideas that I would say is, as has sort of really kind of developed for me and becomes more and more, um, just kind of clear. It, like I, I, I think a lot about just kind of throwing a pair of glasses on yeah. and the, the more I think about functional musicianship and apply it to my life as a, as a teacher and as a conductor and as a player, the more I sort of see it everywhere, everywhere I'm at. The other one fluency in music learning is really one that um, again, it's, it's Suzuki oriented for sure. 
Mm-hmm. But you know, I teach I teach a beginning guitar and piano class at my school. Okay. And um, and I've I flipped my uh, uh, guitar and piano classroom probably 15 years ago before it was a thing it before it was called a flip classroom i flipped my classroom and we had a closed circuit tv uh environment at my school years ago and i I read a book called disrupting class um back in those days do you know that book i do know that maybe you gave it to me or i might have yeah and uh that it was a great book It, it is a great book yeah, and and um and it really uh, discusses disruptive technology and how it takes a while for uh, disruptive technology to be an enrichment to a classroom. And actually, the environment that everybody seems to be in this week and this this year is the Zoom uh, environment and the video conferencing environment. But initially. Those of us, and I know you were right in it too, those of us that walked into it early, before it was fully developed as it is today, it was disruptive technology. It didn't always work the way we needed it to work. Um, And thank goodness that it's not disruptive technology today. Today, it's so seamless, and you and I can see each other right now. I know this is not going to be a video, but, but we're looking at each other. We can communicate as human beings on a human level in pretty close to real time. Um, And so this once disruptive technology is now integral technology. And and for a lot of teachers, it's essential. Like my boys, both their teachers are doing conferences. I had 75 kids in my class yesterday and uh, it was, it was great. Everybody could hear, everybody could, you know, chime in when they needed to. I was able to share my screen. I was able to share videos. I mean, I was able to, to, to do a little work on the iPad. You can wirelessly put the iPad on the screen and, and write and do, I mean, it's going to be great. I'm, I'm so looking forward to making additional lessons with that, you know, score study. And as we listen to recordings and watch the score go by, I mean, there's so much we can do. Um, you know, and, and you and I have been using this technology for a long time and for the teachers that are jumping into it at the front end because of necessity right now, it's, it is disruptive to them. You know, I've watched a lot of the, uh, conversation on the ask to connect message boards and on Facebook and different places. And, and I'm sympathetic to the fact that it is in fact disruptive, uh, for them now, but the learning curve for them and the disruptive, the length of time that is disruptive will be much shorter. And I, I will share this story. M- my wife is a kinder music teacher oh, cool. and um, this environment of not being with her little children has been really, really emotional for her and, um, and for the kids and for the parents of those kids. And she is less comfortable in the Zoom environment than I am. She's never used it before. The camera freaks her out a little bit. And um, I've been encouraging her just to sort of jump in, but it's not easy. And I think for guys like you and I, one of the important um, kind of uh, 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 things just to remember is that while you and I can click into a Zoom meeting and not think twice about it, uh, it is not that simple for everybody. And, and there are a myriad of reactions to, um, to this for others. And it is disruptive. And, mm-hmm. and we have to obviously care for each other and walk each other through the process in 
um, people figure things out. And when the, the light bulb clicks or like, I was able to do this and like, that is awesome. You know, for the first yeah. time or whatever it might be for them, it just makes me always feel really good to be able to help people with it. And I enjoy that's, that's what I do. That's why this podcast exists. Cause just to get people resources and, and ideas and to meet people like you, if no one's ever met you, they're missing out. You know, <laughs> that's really nice of you. Well, let me, uh, let me just go back to the fluency thing. I'll just wrap up that idea. So, so when I flipped my classroom, uh, the, the whole idea was that I had been teaching these beginning guitar and beginning piano lessons over hundreds and thousands of times to hundreds of students over the years. And if I could put them on video and, and make my content delivery uh, uh, seamless, continuous, then it would free up my time in my face-to-face classroom to mentor kids, to hear them, to assess them and give them advice and move through our class. So I did it. I put all the beginning guitar, all the beginning piano and all my theory lectures online. And, um, and they eventually made their way to YouTube, which is funny because I had no idea that that would ever happen. They were all done for our closed circuit TV. Uh, so anyway, they're on YouTube now, but, but, um, but it's, it saves time in the classroom. And here's the, here's the fluency piece. Just like when kids learn a word, they learn one word, hot, mom, milk, whatever their words are that they start learning. And they add words continuously, just like we add beginning songs continuously. And I, I drive this home with my students that you're never finished with a song. You're just adding songs to your repertoire. Right. And like Suzuki told us, the more we play the, the, the music we know already, the more it becomes expressive, it becomes articulate. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not just about learning new techniques all the time, but playing the stuff we know in a, in a repeated way, and it becomes more and more expressive, musical, and um, fluent in the end. And That's so... One of the reasons I love being able to... to we play a piece at a, a, a fall event that we do, and we play it again at winter, and it's, it's, a, different, it's a totally different situation for them. Totally different piece. Um, they're not worried about the shifts so much now. Now we're worried about, can we make this phrase happen? Can we, you know, do, you know... So I, it, I'm totally right on with you. And, uh, yeah, and, and we can, we can find it not only in beginning lessons, but in our advanced students that, and, and in our ensembles, um, here's one, one of my favorite things is to do a concert twice. Uh, even if it's in a weekend, I find that the first concert is usually, uh, tentative and, uh, less fluent than a second performance of the same repertoire. There's something about that multiple, I don't do it all the time, but when I can, I absolutely do. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and so I just, I, I use this analogy. I keep coming back to the analogy of fluency um, in at, at kind of all levels of my teaching. I think so many of us string teachers have been, you know, raised in that environment but then applying it into our own teaching scenario is really super important. And I think articulating it in a very clear way for our students, because I didn't, once I learned a piece, I would want to move on. Right. And I think it's human nature, right? That's but philosophy, yeah, that's the philosophy of a lot of kids. Just like, I want to keep going. I want to keep doing more. See, so, but, but the functionality of this, if I get back now to my other idea, it grows from 
the repertoire that my original repertoire that I do on electric violin um, is music that I've played again, probably thousands of times. Right. So I, I'm a better improviser because I've played it thousands of times. The, what I can do as a, as a musician, as an expressive musician is so far enhanced and how I can move people with my music is enhanced. So again, this is another one of those concepts that grows from my experience as a musician. And then I can take it right into the classroom. And if I can remind teachers of, of that concept, I think it's an important role as a sort of, again, as sort of a, as a veteran and somebody that's kind of been down the road, both on the performance side and on the uh, pedagogical side. You have a very diverse career, you know, with all that, all that you've done. Yeah, I feel really fortunate. And, uh, you know, um, one of the sessions that I've done a lot in recent years at conferences is uh, called finding fulfillment in your career in uh, string education. And in that session, I look at a number of different models of fulfillment and career fulfillment. And, um, and as part of it, I, I created my own model as well. And one of the integral parts to my model of why, you know, I'm happy and engaged and love what I do is one of the parts of that is that, is that I still play and I play a lot and I still learn and grow. In fact, after we do this podcast, I've got a, I've got an appointment to do some playing for another, uh, for my church's podcast so that they'll have some of the, some of the music that we typically do on a Sunday morning recorded so they can put it, uh, on online for them. And that's just part of what I do. It's just, just, it's almost seamless. Yeah. I, I have pl- been through different parts of my career where I've played a lot. Um, and then some where I've hardly played at all. And, you know, depending on your life and your kids and um, things that go on, it, it varies, you know. So every opportunity I get that I, that works for my schedule, I definitely want to keep going with that. And um, as my kids get older and, you know, eventually leave the house down the road, uh, that's something that I definitely want to get back into a lot more is just more playing, more music making. I totally agree with you. And and, and I do, I, I have found in my life and career, I go through phases as well where my artistic satisfaction is uh, found in different places. So uh, I'll go through a phase where it's all about the violin and then I'll go through a phase where it's all about the guitar. And then I'll go through a phase where it's all about conducting and rehearsing uh, and, and then I'll go through a phase where it's all about pedagogy and sharing my ideas. And I totally agree that it's not, it, you, nobody can maintain a hundred percent constant yeah. and, and just sort of, and I think one of the tricks is being sensitive to what's missing. You know, if you go through a couple months or longer where one piece of those things is not as, uh, uh, is not as fulfilled Sometimes you just have to bite the bullet and find that, you know, and I think it's really important. It's mindful. It's been a while since I've played a gig and I just got an offer to do one for, for Easter. And uh, I was like, you know, it's a busy weekend, but I really feel like I need to do this. I want to do this. Yeah. It's not, it's not about the money. It's about that fulfillment, you know? And then of course that got moved to the end of April. Now right. we'll see if it happens uh, at Easter. So- end of April is going to be uh, an interesting thing, but 
you know, you'll appreciate this. I turned down all my Easter gig offers because it was going to be spring break for our school. And I wanted to prioritize a trip to the beach for our family. And obviously that's probably not going to happen now. So it's crazy how, how things have turned out this, this spring. Yeah. I've canceled the plan for spring break, but we are still going to go camping, which is, which is awesome. And, uh, um, parks are open and it's, I'm still quarantined, but in a tent rather than the house. So that's going to be fun. That's a good, that's a good call. It's always better in a tent without a doubt. Yeah. Well, um, anything else that, uh, is on your mind, uh, you talk a little bit about if you have a couple minutes, just about maybe, um, some of the things that you might be doing now, given our situation of, and not been in school and, and some of the uh, strategies you're using or uh, things that you may be sharing. And of course, uh, any uh, helpful links. Uh, we want definitely want to link to your blog because there's a lot of great words of wisdom on your blog. Um, we'll put that in the podcast description. Uh, but anything else you could tell us about, you know, what you're doing now or how that's working for you? Well, obviously, life has changed a lot in the last couple of weeks for absolutely everybody. Um, at my school, uh, our students were scheduled for a long weekend last weekend, and so they were just told that, that they'd be staying home. There was no end date for us, at least initially, and, and still isn't really, but my expectation, it'll be probably be longer than we, than we thought. Um, we had a dark week this week uh, where it's basically time for teachers to prepare to go online, and then we'll be online like almost everybody starting next Monday. Okay. Um, our school's policy is we're going to have class as usual. It'll all be in a, a Zoom or online environment. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually, right now, I teach three courses at my school. I teach, obviously, orchestra. Uh, I teach, and we're in the middle of pre preparation for a concerto concert. And, of course, concerts are up in the air right now. So that we have, I teach a music history course, and I teach a beginning guitar and piano course. So... Um, uh, we're going to meet uh, through Zoom during our regular class schedule. And um, with my piano and guitar kids, I was already set up because we're a, a flipped classroom. So they have all my content delivery and I'll be online with them to assess and provide feedback during their class periods. Nice. During my music history class, because it's basically a, a, a fairly traditional music history class, although... It's also set up to be flipped. My content is all in Canvas. I didn't have to modify anything right. to make that go into an online environment. So other than Zoom meetings, it's going to be business as usual. That's and nice. then, yeah, and everybody's wondering about orchestra. A person that I've ever encountered as, as far as being able to deal with this crisis and, and not being in school, you're, you're ready to go, man. <laughs> well, I, you know, obviously I wasn't thinking about it, but, but I, I would say, so this might be a, an interesting, just broad thought for your audience. I, I still remember uh, in my undergraduate experience, I had to take an educational technology course. Maybe everybody still does. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't remember all the content of that class. I remember that we threaded a lot of uh, movie projectors and film strip projectors and learned how to run uh, the old mimeograph machines and dittos and <laughs> whatever <laughs> stuff we haven't used in 30 years. But one thing I remember is that the teacher said, if there's one thing 
that you need to remember is if there will be um, uh, a, a problem with technology can happen, it will. So always be prepared and prep your technology well before class and make sure that everything is working. Right. And um, advice. Yeah, definitely. And I started teaching in 1987, winter of 1987. So before anybody really had PCs in their office or anything. So, so I, I think just as a function of my, my age, when PCs came out, I was an early adopter. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I thought, wow, I can, I can arrange music. And I used, I don't remember what the name of the program was. It might've been finale, but I don't remember composer I used to use back in the day. Sure. And, uh, but I jumped on that. And then uh, I remember when laptops became really functional and came out and, um, and PowerPoint. And I was an early adopter of PowerPoint. I thought, okay, this can be really functional in my classroom. Yeah. And I was using web technology like back in the 1999, 2000, before people really had websites for their orchestra and parents would be like, well, oh, we don't, you know, I can't put anything online or like a photo. So I had to get like permission forms. And I mean, you still have to do that, but it was, they were, people were really nervous about it. And, uh, but I remember having a orchestra website in like 99 or 2000. I did too. I, I was one of the first. And, uh, and then I remember, you know, uh, uh, jumping in on this video stuff. So, uh, so it just, I just have been an early adopter and, have been willing to sort of step outside my comfort zone. Oh, also with electric violins in the classroom. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was one of those things that I got my hands on an electric violin in, I don't know, 93, maybe 90, no earlier than that, probably 92 or 91 and did a bunch of cool stuff with it myself. And, and went, man, if I'm finding my voice with this thing, my students are going to as well. And um, put it in my students' hands and, and was just, I was just one of the first ones to do it because I'm an early adopter. Oh, and I do have to share this. One of my students from the early 90s is still playing electric violin. Well, lots of my students from the early 90s are, but his name is Shuvo Sir, and he is um, doing soundtrack work now. And he actually is doing the soundtrack for the number one podcast in the world oh. called over the hill it's a cnn um series and it's all shuvo's music with a lot of electric violin in it um and it's about the delphi murders in indiana and it's a it's a very intense podcast but if your listeners are looking for interesting stuff to check out uh this wonderful composer from uh my classroom in the 90s shuvo sir is doing the soundtrack for that and he's having a lot of success and I'm just That's, so proud of him. Yeah, of course. It's it's always neat to to see former students do some cool things with music. I mean, it's cool to see them become, you know, doctors or whatever they're going to do as well. Yeah. But uh when they when they take musician uh, musicianship like to the to the next level and and or become teachers, I just it's it's that's what keeps me going too. One of the things that keeps me going for sure. I- Absolutely. And you know, it's funny when, when I came to the school of science and math, uh, 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 before I was at science and math, when I was at Eleanor Roosevelt, we had lots of students going into music all the time, uh, as I'm sure you do right now. And in all kinds of areas, um, which was awesome. And when I came to the school of science and math, 
I really thought, well, maybe those days are over and it has not been the case. You know, some of our students come to our school with science and math as sort of the goal. And then they realize, oh, wait, this, my passion lies in the arts. My passion lies with my instrument or lies with teaching. And it's so gratifying to see those kids go on and succeed as well. Uh, so we see it even from the school of science and math for sure. That's great. Yeah. Well, um, this has been an awesome conversation and uh, I wish we, you know, we def- definitely could probably do a lot more and maybe down the road, we'll have you back and we'll discuss some of the other awesome things that you're doing. But uh, I definitely appreciate you being able to come on. I know our listeners will enjoy this, this episode a lot. Um, and everybody has time to listen uh, now no where we've had in the past. So, uh, but thank you again, Scott, for coming on. It's, it's always a pleasure. Charles, I'm really honored to be part of the podcast. It's, so cool to see uh, the things that you're doing to share your ideas with teachers uh, around the world, actually. And, you know, just one of the things that I'd love to say is, you know, when you and I first met, it was through, it was as a result of our common interest in technology as a vehicle for teaching. And um, I think we had both uh, proposed sessions for ASTA on using technology as a pedagogical tool in our classroom. My my recollection is at the time you were a little more middle school focused Mm -hmm. and I was a little more high school focused. And I think you were a little more software focused and I was a little more conceptually oriented, but in the end we gave a pre-conference session at that ANSTA conference for, I don't know, 12 or 15 people in Santa Clara in California. Yeah. Yeah. And it was so it was so wonderful. And I think you and I both realized immediately that it would become friends, which we have <laughs> and have shared a lot over the years. And um, what a wonderful thing. And I just want to thank you for all you're doing for teachers because this podcast is a great resource. My kids, I love uh, working with teachers and, um, you know, being able to work with, you know, colleagues such as yourself. We have a, a, a great group of teachers. And I realized after, like how how close we really were, you know, like just even if it's been a year since we've seen each other or talked to each other, um, usually it isn't that long, but we just can come together and it's like, it's like nothing ever, ever changes. It's always so natural and so organic and just, that's how it is. It's a, it's a, I think a great test of, of friendship and common, common mindset. And I, I find that, uh, Lots of people experience that, and it, but it's so warm and so wonderful to experience, and it and it does help us even in these times when we're uh, isolated and separated to remember that we're not alone. And uh, and so I value this time. I value you as a friend. Thank you. And and um, it's a good. It's a good reminder of of this notion that we're all in this together for sure. Absolutely. Um, so th- that'll, that'll do it for this episode, but, uh, I will be sharing Scott's information. Uh, if you have questions or want to reach out to him, we'll have his contact information, uh, some info about what he does. And if he has any, uh, cool links, his blog, like I said, his blog are great, great words of wisdom for every, uh, every, uh, teacher, no matter if you're in music or not. Uh, there's just a lot of really good things in there. So thank you again, Scott. Uh, we will, uh, close out this episode. We'll see you all later. Peace, everybody.